Hi, my name is Lisa Saperstein, and this is My Life Wildlife. I'm the regional fire ecologist for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the Alaska region, and I'm stationed in Anchorage, Alaska. I do everything from doing field work, looking at post-fire effects. I help with writing fire management plans. I connect with researchers and keep um, people in the region abreast of current research in fire ecology. And if there are actually fires going on, I help with the on the incident management teams in the plan section. And I also do some fire behavior modeling. And that involves running models to tell people where a fire might be, say, in anywhere from one day to two weeks. You learn a lot about fire in western states, pretty much anywhere in the, in the lower 48. Fire has been excluded for so many years. They have regrowth of things that are not historically natural and a buildup of fuels, and um, that is one of the problems they're facing down there. And up in Alaska, it's completely different in a lot of ways. Instead of uh, just burning the trees and having a thin organic mat, here we have these deep layers of decaying organic matter and moss called duff, and fire burns into that. And how deeply it burns into the duff really determines what happens post-fire. Fire is a rejuvenating process. Black spruce, for example, which covers a lot of our landscape, is a fire-dependent species. Its cones are semi-serotonous, which means they open up and fall in the seed bed, and then you get stand-replacing fires. You, know, you can take a black spruce stand, and if it burns down to mineral soil especially, you're going to get a lot more deciduous plants moving in, particularly deciduous shrubs and trees as time goes on, and that's favorable for some species of wildlife, such as, as moose, which prefer to eat willows and paper birch. So fire is often seen as being beneficial to moose. Yeah, on the other hand, caribou in winter eat lichens, and these are readily destroyed by fire and can take decades to come back, you know, 50 to 100 years to get back to the grazable levels that they were before. I am a big lichen fan. <laughs> that might not be what you were thinking of in terms of a favorite wildlife species, but when I came up here, one of the things that you learn pretty quickly when dealing with caribou and fire is that in wintertime, caribou eat lichens, and these burn up and take a long time to regrow, and they're pretty fascinating. A lichen is actually... a it's a symbiotic relationship between a fungal component and an algae component. So just the fact that they form these, these things that can be broken, you know, identified as a, a species is, is kind of amazing. They might be greenish or yellowish or white, and they might be look like little miniature trees on the ground. Some of them grow, you know, as crusts on rocks. Um, so they look very different than mosses, although people will call them caribou moss, even though they're not mosses. 
we have you know, a lot of these cool lichens that grow on on the ground surface there's other ones that grow on trees and they just they just still fascinate me to this day and when i come across an area with a lot of lichens i just get all excited still <laughs> In Alaska, we have a very integrated approach to fire management. The state is divided into what we call these fire management options. And this includes critical areas that are mapped as areas where we want to keep fire out of. And this is where communities are and, and other highly valued resources um, where people, you know, there's threats to life and property. And then there's full, where we still want to keep those fires small, but it's not as critical. And then there's limited, where we recognize fire's natural role on the environment, and we monitor fires, and they are allowed to fulfill their natural role on the environment. Then there's another area that we call modified, which up until a certain time of the year, when there's a probability of fires getting big, we treat it like full and we try to keep the fires small. And then later on in the year, once we start getting some rains and there's less of a chance for these fires to grow, it's treated like limited. So th these areas are mapped statewide and the different agencies have a role in developing what they want their fire management options to be on, on their landscapes. And they can also do what's called a non-standard response. So it's important to keep in mind that these fire management options are for the initial response. It's what occurs within, say, that first 48 hours after a fire is detected. After that, the action, any kind of suppression is based on what's happening with, with that fire. And it becomes really important when you have a bunch of lightning strikes and a lot of fires on the landscape all at once to help sort out which ones get dealt with and how. And when things are far away, yes, it becomes pretty much an air show. We use smoke jumpers a lot. Smoke jumper are people just like it sounds where they parachute out of planes to an area to deal with fires. So. They could drop a couple of them to do, say, some of that point protection and not have a, a big crew, and they'll dig a fire line around an area that they need to protect. And, and sometimes they are the, you know, the first people on site on, on a fire. There's um, airplanes and helicopters dipping water and dropping them on fires. There's only so much you can do. A lot of those remote fires are in that limited fire management option, though. And, and that is one of the reasons, the ability to, to address them, as well as the natural role of fire on the landscape. So as a jurisdictional agency, one of our roles is to see how fire is affecting our resources and how we might want to manage both the resources and the fires. We um, change vegetation to reduce the threat of fire, and it's usually around communities. And there are some things that we don't know about, how these fuels treatments might respond over time. For example, Kenai Refuge, they are probably one of the biggest areas where we have refuge lands you know, interfacing with human population and they have installed these big masticated fuels breaks outside of Sterling. And the masticated is basically they are chipping the black spruce to reduce the threat of fire. 
and this masticated fuels brake, it's not designed to stop fire in its tracks, it's designed to allow firefighters a place where they can safely work, put out hose lays, light backfires, etc. So one of the things we don't know is how long it's going to take for vegetation to come back into these areas where they're no longer effective. These areas will burn, um, so we're collecting data to, to maybe see how we can model how fire burns through this fuels break, through the masticated material. And we're not sure if invasive species might end up populating the area or what might come back. For example, if grass comes back, that is a very fast you know, fuel. Fires will move quickly through it. Or will tall shrubs come back, which will dampen fire behavior, but they can also interfere with firefighters' ability to move around in the fuel break. So the fire behavior modeling is new to me, and, and I really like it because uh, it takes my knowledge of vegetation and, and I think can put it towards something useful. So basically you have this landscape on the computer that collapses things like slope, elevation, and fuel model, and the fuel models they end up being basically mathematical formulas about how fire will burn on, on the landscape, but they're tied to the type of vegetation, the type of fuels that are out there on the landscape. For example, a birch forest with you know deciduous shrubs is going to burn very differently than, say, a black spruce forest with a bunch of ericaceous shrubs and feather moss below it. So these have been incorporated into fuel models and the fuel models tell you things like what's the rate of spread of the fire or how high will those flames get so they can get into the canopy and say form a canopy fire. And, and weather is a big part of the model. So there's one that just takes a weather forecast and holds it constant and you might use this for up to three days and you run it across the landscape and it might tell you where the fire is going to be in, in a day or two days. There's other ones that take into account climatology for say the past 20 years. So they take the forecast for like three days or so, but then it pulls in the climatology of an area over time, as well as the things I mentioned before, the landscape, the topography, the fuel models. And this will give you a point cloud that shows you the probability of which pixels on this computer landscape will burn within say seven days or two week period. And these are used by fire managers to help them assess their actions, whether it's um, actual suppression actions or how to prioritize different fires. There is a lot of misconceptions out there about what goes on when there is a fire in an area that people you know, where they might be exposed to, to fire. And there are also a lot of resources where they can get a, a better picture of what is happening and what the limitations are. I think some of it is not realizing what else is going on. That, you know, if there's, you know, why didn't they put this fire out? Well, and, you know, the fact is that there was maybe seven fires that started right about the same time. And one was in limited management option as we talked about before while the rest were pretty critical and closer to people's homes and that limited 
management option one might get put off to the side for a bit and then that one may end up growing as you get more warmer, drier weather, especially if the weather's unexpected. Yeah, that, that was one of the situations with the Swan Lake fire on the Kenai Peninsula. And there is a really good story map out there that describes all of the things that happened, you know, just before and, and during the fire. And um, I think if people just Google Swan Lake sto fire story map, they can get some really, really good information and could help with understanding what happens in similar situations in the future. This has been My Life Wildlife, a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. Producers, Lisa Hupp and Chris Pacheco. Produced and story edited by David Hoffman for Citizen Race Car. Audio editing, sound design, and original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Artwork by Michelle Lawson. In Alaska, the employees of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are shared stewards of world-renowned natural resources and our nation's last true wild places. The lands and waters of this place we call home nourish a vast and unique array of fish, wildlife, and people. Our hope is that each generation has the opportunity to live with, live from, discover, and enjoy the wildness of this awe-inspiring land and the people who love and depend on it.